Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. How's everything uh, in in Austin for you guys right now, Evan? Um, it's bad, but I left Austin. I'm in LA right now. Did you leave Austin because of the it's bad? <laughs> yeah, I left Austin because it's really bad. It's gonna get it's gonna be worse today, and then tomorrow it'll get better, and then it'll get better into Sunday. But Saturday, Sunday, but there's no water now. Everyone has to boil water. My gosh. Um, no, no foods left. All the infrastructure is at zero. It's just too many days of this. They should have really called FEMA in, but they can't even get FEMA to come in. That's how bad it is. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Warrior. I am super glad that you're jumping in here on this Suncast soundbite. It is a mini-sode, if you will, a quick episode that's not a Tactical Tuesday, not a long-form Thursday episode. It is an extra Sometimes we do this on Fridays or other days when we have a guest that has extraordinary information that we want to share with you and it's timely, but doesn't fit in our normal production schedule. If you are a Texas resident or if you've been watching what's happening in Texas, you no doubt realize that there is a crisis in ERCOT. There is a crisis in the electricity markets as well as a humanity crisis right now for as a, re- a result of what's happening down there. And since I'm not in Texas, but I have friends down there, I called on just such a friend, Mr. Evan Carone. You're going to hear much more from Evan. He's an Austin resident who is an energy trader and really, really, really deeply understands this market. So if you have been trying to figure it out, understand what the heck is happening in that market, we are here to give you some answers. And hey, by the way, if you are on clubhouse you can find me on clubhouse at suncast yes i got suncast on clubhouse at suncast on clubhouse find me add me let's be friends there i I have been showing up lately but evan and i are going to jump on clubhouse as soon as possible so make sure you friend me on clubhouse and we're going to jump on and have a little q a and have evan talk more about not only what's happening in the markets but where you might be able to find opportunities to invest either in equities and uh, and that gets interesting or in building out the the future of the Texas grid but for now let's get ready to tune in to this suncast soundbite all about what's happening down in Texas and how you can get better informed here on suncast well solar warriors I am certain you've been following along with what's happening with the, what could easily be termed the absolute debacle in ERCOT and on the Texas grid right now in Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, the, geez, the whole state of Texas right now is uh, under snow and underwater uh, in terms of energy costs. And a lot of folks just don't understand and they're starting to realize they don't understand how the Texas grid operates. So I thought we would bring on Someone I know understands it very well, Mr. Evan Carone, the founder and CEO of ClearTrace. You may recall that a couple of weeks ago, we had Zach Livingston 
of ClearTrace. I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to that episode if you want to understand more about what ClearTrace does. But as we were prepping for an interview with Evan, I realized, man, very few people I know understand the Texas market like Evan. And we had this opportunity to jump on the phone. So Evan, thanks for taking some time to join us here on Suncast. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to uh, I was was the CEO. I'm the chief strategy officer now. I just don't want to get, have anyone at the company get get upset with the with the title. So yeah, yeah, no worries, man. I, I yeah. appreciate that totally. Can you give us a sense for those who don't know anything about you? You've got you know 15 plus years in energy trading in the Texas market. Could you give me a quick, maybe 30 second background overview of your understanding of the power markets to sort of as a precedent for why this conversation matters? Yeah, so I've been involved in the Texas electricity markets very specifically since 2003. Uh, I used to manage power plants, uh, and then I became a, a financial analyst, a fundamental analyst, learning the complexities of the electric grid, the actual transmission grid, the distribution grid. And then I spent the better part of my career actually trading like stocks, the the, the, the difference between uh, supply demand in Texas, just Texas, more or less. And so I have a very, very unique position in knowing every power plant in Texas, the small ones and the big ones, all the big uh, utilities and all the players, all the people that are involved in, in, the, in this system. It's been a, a challenging week, an interesting week, uh, but it's definitely been what I would call the slowest moving freight train you could see that this was bound to happen. And ERCOT and the Texas electric grid is islanded from the rest of the country because it wants to maintain its own independence from the rest of the country. And it's not governed under uh, federal energy law. It's it's covered under North American reliability law, but not under FERC. It is its own, its own entity. And so it operates in a very different way. Let me jump in really quick because I don't want folks to get lost in. There's a lot of acronyms that we're going to throw around. But let's start at the top, what you just mentioned. Help us understand exactly how Texas is different from the rest of the country as an independent operator. You mentioned ERCOT. Maybe for those unfamiliar, you could explain what ERCOT means. FERC uh, is a federal regulatory body for all of the electric bodies in the United States. But could we just start at the top of how is Texas different? Why is it so different, I'll say, in the winter than Cal ISO or some of the other regional ISOs? Talk about import and export capacity, things like that. Texas and ERCOT, ERCOT is like the basically system operator. They're the ones who kind of manage the grid, right? They manage buyers, they manage sellers, they manage power plants, they manage all of the finances and all the clearing and all the, the market itself, right? They're, they're technically kind of like an exchange, right? They, they balance buyers and sellers. They keep they, Their goal is to keep the lights on. One of the interesting things is that ERCOT is not all of Texas. There's parts of Texas that are not in ERCOT, the panhandle happens to wow. not be in ERCOT. I didn't realize El Paso that. happens to not be in ERCOT. The Woodlands in Houston is not in ERCOT. Get out of town. Is that a municipal? No, it's a different ISO. It's in it's in Entergy. There's a misnomer that Texas is islanded from the rest of the grid, uh, the rest of the North American power grid. ERCOT is a is majority Dallas, Houston, San Antonio down to the valley and the border, all the way to Odessa. And that's really where it stops. And there's outskirts of, of Texas that happen to be you know, outside of ERCOT. But the ERCOT power grid has basically decided you know, over the last 20 years to maintain its independence from the rest of the North American power grid for a couple of reasons. One, interstate commerce. Two, requirements to not to abide under federal energy law. Three, there's a lot of energy independence in Texas with oil and natural gas and wind and solar resources and in some cases, what happens, you know, they want to keep all that money and all that 
economic activity inside of the state. Uh, and so that's, you know, there's very little or limited ability to import power from other parts of the country. There are a couple places you can import power near mineral wells, you can import power in East Texas, uh, but it's very, very limited. And so what happens in Texas kind of stays in Texas, if you will. Uh, and it's and it's worked out okay for the last, you know, 20 some odd years. We've only had one or two power crises in 2008, uh, storm-related power crisis, drought-related power crisis in 2011, some scarcity power issues in the summer. One of the other interesting things is that ERCOT and Texas is, a, is an energy-only market, which means that it's really a free market decides how power plants should, should be owned, operated, and there's no additional cost to the ratepayer or the consumer to keep inefficient power plants online. So in PJM and in, in, in the Northeast, in California, they have resource adequacy and capacity markets that say, well, we're not really sure this power plant's always going to run. So we're always going to keep some in reserve. We're always going to keep some in the tank. We never had that market. We had an energy-only market design, and it's done well from a consumer perspective because Texas was, before this event, very fortunate to have some of the lowest energy prices in the whole country from a retail perspective, significantly lower than other parts of the country by orders of magnitude. Now, this event obviously changes all that. But um, the energy-only market design is an academic and uh, economic theory that's, that gives the ability for power generators to make their own decisions on whether to produce power or not. And it's a fundamentally different design than the rest of, the, uh, uh, the rest of North America. Is that in any way predicated on a fundamental abundance of generation assets or lack of fluctuation by and large in weather? I mean, what's happening right now is, is effectively a weather event. And it's lack of planning for that weather event. There are a couple of things, actually. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on the lack of planning. But is that fundamental sort of experiment, economic theory, based on the energy independence nature of Texas? It was run by Harvard. And I mean, again, the, the energy-only design, you know, they use it in, Cal in, uh, in Australia as well, I think, in some cases. But it's very, it's very fundamentally different than the other designs, right? You have, you say, why should I hold all, why should I have the, the Texas ratepayers pay to keep 50-year-old, 60-year-old, 70-year-old power plants that never run, maybe run an hour a year, 10 hours a year, why do I have to pay them hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, to keep power plants in reserve? It's just a, an A versus B. You could have capacity markets or you could have energy only. It's kind of one or the other. And Texas decided to go energy only, and it's been a firm advocate of energy only because it was more efficient, potentially more uh, optimized, uh, and reduced, reduced overall cost to the system. And is that something that has challenged the nature of how they could respond to this Absolutely. current weather event? In what ways? I mean, I think, you know, here's the thing. This event, even if we had a capacity market, I don't think it would, would have changed very much. I mean, we had, you know, we had 20,000 megawatts more of demand than, than, a, than a normal, right, than a normal winter. Uh, we had 10,000 megawatts more than the forecasted extreme weather demand. So ERCOT and the Texas power market goes through a system adequacy report. Every six months, they send out a report saying, this is if we stress the system, this is the worst we're going to do, right? Maybe a couple hours at scarcity. They had about 65 or 66,000 megawatts of demand for all of Texas as their extreme case. We were forecast to go to 74. So it was an additional seven or 8,000 megawatts on top of the extreme case to the upside. Additionally, on an outage perspective, they only assume that there's going to be eight or 9,000 megawatts of outage. We had 30,000 megawatts of thermal outage, natural gas, coal, 
and nuclear. So this blew through all of the projections, you know, the, the one, two sigma, three sigma, I mean, true black swan event where I don't know what they could have done other than maybe planned to give the consumers and the Texas, pop, the Texas residents more time to go out and buy supplies and go out and, and get water for, you know, for their homes and go out and find a place to get shelter or leave the state if they could, right? This was what I keep saying is a slow moving freight train on Thursday of last week the market, all the market participants that know how to value the fundamentals of the market saw that there was going to be hours and hours and hours, maybe days of shortfall conditions, days. And nobody said anything until Sunday night, 1 a.m. They said, hey, risk of rotating blackouts, risk of rotating outages. They could have easily on Wednesday said, hey, get out of town, get supplies, hunker down because this is going to get bad. You know, shut your water pipes down. They just didn't give anyone enough notification. It's a real event as real as a hurricane. That's right. Inbound. So is there anything similar that we can look back in history, even in Texas, but maybe nationwide, that we could equate this to these kinds of scarcity conditions? I mean, you know, this is, you know, I don't want to I don't want to downplay any hurricane related issues or whatever else. But when the grid goes down during hurricanes and people and there's like a, you know, or flooding where there's significant consume, you know, population panic around hoarding resources and whatever else. I mean, I can't do a corollary on this, right? I mean, look at the the Deepwater Horizon rig, right? That that leaked all that oil in the Gulf, right? Was that supposed to happen? No. Was everyone saying this was a risk? Yes. What what was the probability of that risk? Very, very low, but it happened and it, and it created catastrophic downstream effects, right? And so this is the thing that proves that that our energy independence, our energy infrastructure, highly fragile. Politicians and policymakers decide how to manage that grid, and it's a physics-based system. We're getting more extreme weather every year. It's not stopping. It's just, you know, hopefully I would just want one year of normal weather. It just doesn't seem like we're ever going to get that. And so we're getting more weather extremes. We're getting more heat for longer, more cold for longer, zero degree temperatures all the way down to Brownsville or, or you know, teens temperatures down to the valley. It just doesn't happen, right? It, it hasn't happened in a hundred years. And so, you know, we just don't have the right infrastructure policy combination of those two things to be able to plan for these type of events. Yeah. I mean, I think a little bit more notice probably would have, would have changed. I get, maybe this would have still happened, but a little bit more notice, maybe we wouldn't have had such dire straits for people who are freezing to death and people who are, you know, don't have water or don't have electricity for five days. And, you know, that's just, that's a problem. In the summer, it's less of an issue. You can go check into a hotel, you know, you can sleep outside, you can sleep with the, you know, the air condition matters clearly and electricity matters for people with critical issues. But in the winter, people freeze to death and they die. We had all those primates die at the zoo in South Texas. That's sad. You know, we're having, you know, animals with their ears freezing off. I mean, it's just the, the, the issues here are climate related for sure. Energy infrastructure is just not set up for this. It's set up for steady as you go, right? And very little slack capacity in the system. We're seeing short-term, potentially long-term repercussions for markets that depend on Texas, like uh, Mexico. Mexico's 80% of the gas they import comes from Texas. They're now shut off. The gas is at in extraordinarily uh, in uneconomical prices That's right. right now. So the two questions I have as we wrap is, what are the potential ramifications in the energy market near-term that we need to be aware of? And then long-term, 
what do we need to be thinking about in the energy sector, in particular renewables, that we'll learn from this or that we can extrapolate out and how, how we could even benefit from it? So the first one is a harder question, right? That that comes to North American energy policy around exporting fuels like LNG. I mean, we exported LNG during this crisis, right? So we were you know, create, creating LNG when natural gas prices were at 300. We were burning, we were burning electricity, electrons, and exporting natural gas uh, to Asia and Europe and other parts of the world. So there's there's issues associated with energy policy, which I can't really impact, right? I think the fact that Mexico takes a lot of natural gas from Texas, well, that's a decision they're going to have to make themselves. So they want to rely on Texas for natural gas, or they want to drill their own and potentially change their fuel mix. So that's one. I don't know what the repercussions are going to be on you know the governor's decision to stop exporting natural gas. But I, what I will say is that that it was a a facility infrastructure issue around weather, weatherization, not a supply issue. We had plenty of supply. We just couldn't move it. And if you look at the gas prices now, natural gas prices down from 300 in MMBTU to 10. I mean, that's still high. 10 is still high, but it's not 300. Once the gas pipes stop freezing, then you can move gas around. And the wellhead stop freezing, you can move gas around. So I think there's probably going to be a big push to infrastructure weatherization in places that historically never needed it. So, you know, people still pump gas out of Utica in the Northeast uh, at 18 degrees or 25 degrees. Uh, they're going to have to identify better ways to manage freeze-offs and manage natural gas infrastructure from a pipeline perspective. So that's one, and that's pretty easy. Raise a couple, you know, $50 billion, $100 billion, and, you know, we're printing money anyway. So you might as well just, you know, shore up our, <laughs> our weatherization infrastructure for natural gas, because we're still going to need natural gas, right? That's, that's, that's a bottom line. I think it, it, what it does is it maybe shakes a little bit of the, the uncertainty or maybe just increases the uncertainty around, around relying 100% on intermittent resources like solar and wind uh, to power the grid. The 100% solar and wind seems more challenging, right? You're like, okay, well, if we didn't have any thermal at all and we had 100% solar and 100% wind, you know, we would have a problem, right? A big problem. I think maybe we change a little bit of the narrative around just investing in solar and wind and looking at other solutions, right? Geothermal, maybe nuclear 2.0, maybe long duration storage like ceramic or other materials for storage, uh, maybe cleaner burning fuels for natural gas, maybe clean coal. Uh, I just think that you know this these type of events, when we get it wrong, it, it's really bad, right? And so you have to make the trade-off of 100% clean and green energy or 100% energy all the time. And I think one of the other things to really consider is around conservation of energy and thinking about how to use less. It's a lot easier to shut off a light than it is to, to create a megawatt of, of energy, whether it's renewable or traditional. And I think we have to have a newfound appreciation of, of true demand response uh, and what it looks like to coordinate uh, outages, what it looks like to coordinate the grid itself or what they call grid orchestration. We wouldn't have had such an issue. Forget about the price of power at 9,000. That, that is neither here nor there. But if the if Encore and the and the transmission operators knew that they can shut my home off because it was thirty five you know it was seventy degrees but someone else's was forty and we had the capability to actually have a smart grid then maybe some of the issues that we that we saw in Texas wouldn't have been so severe true rotating outages right not and and or voluntary outages hey I'm not going to be home uh, we'll we'll shut your power off for the day and this is kind of maybe some you know uh, segue into what we do at ClearTrace but. We, you know, the the smarting of the grid, right? Smart grids is definitely one of the things for major investment. I think people who are focused on microgrids and resilient behind the meter resources like 
rooftop solar, battery storage, you know, more grid orchestration. You know, I think companies like Enchanted Rock who are building behind the meter natural gas resources to for these type of events to keep critical infrastructure items online, like like grocery stores and things of that nature, hospitals, et cetera. Those are just going to become more and more prevalent, right? Uh, just the focus on resiliency, uh, which is basically hardening up the grid for these type of conditions and weatherization are going to be the two things that come out of this uh, for sure, right? That's definitely guaranteed, right? After that, you know, the renewable energy policy will still be pretty strong in North America. We still have a lot of renewables that we can build that will integrate into the grid. This failure of renewables, I mean, maybe a little bit, but we still have a lot of solar this week, right? I mean, even if it was when it was cloudy, there was still gigawatts of solar on the grid. The issue is, and one other thing that I want to mention is that renewables operate and create zero marginal cost power, more or less. When a natural gas power plant needs to buy fuel at $500 an MMBTU or 400 or 100 or even 10, the margins get so compressed on thermal resources that because they're owned by investors, not owned by the government, they, they retire them. They shut them down. They say, this, this doesn't make me money. And so you, you, can't, you can't just blame one resource type or another. But the, the construct of the Texas power markets, the California power markets, and the transition between dirty to clean is going to create these type of events more often than, than we'd want to admit. Uh, just because the pressure on the other assets from a financial perspective create this, this untenable situation where they know the assets might be needed, but they can't make enough money to stay online. And so there's definitely some economic incentive that can be changed. Maybe uh, some uh, adding some additional outage coordination between the ISO and the and the um, the asset owners saying, okay, well, we don't really want to have more than X gigawatts out per month at any given time, and so please don't schedule maintenance in May. Please schedule it at some other time, and maybe a maintenance coordination. Uh, and so power plants aren't in pieces. Maybe some back emergency backup or dual fuel units that can run off of fuel oil or residual oil to keep critical infrastructure items online like hospitals and wastewater treatment facilities, which also failed in this uh, disaster. Um, and then really trying to identify the, the flexibility that the system actually has on extreme weather events. Okay, great. Let's put in zero degrees for a week in the load forecast and see what happens. Let's put in 112 for 10 days in Texas and see what happens because th those are going to be the extremes on both sides. We're going to get extreme heat and extreme cold. And I think that's the the, 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 there's a lot of smart people involved in the energy markets. So they, you know, might make no mistake. This is a very complex physics-based system that has to do with finance and physics and power generation and infrastructure. And I mean, it's not like building a software as a, a service code base, right? It's it's integrated. It's it's very intertwined. There's not one single solution that's going to solve it. But the more you know, again, the, the thesis is if you have more information, more ability to forecast better forecasting tools, more lead time, uh, and a little bit more orchestration and coordination, these type of things, they, they might still happen, but the severity of, 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 these, of these situations is, is somewhat muted. And there's going to be a lot of post-mortem, right? At ERCOT, there's going to be a post-mortem on the gas supply, the, the gas suppliers. There's going to be post-mortem on the renewable owners around winterization of their of their wind farms. You know, wind farms can operate in cold, cold conditions. They operate in cold conditions other parts of the country. Uh, but Texas, why would you spend the extra money for the one in 20 year event uh, if you don't have to, right? I mean, again, there's economic incentive to not do it. And it created, it, and, and those wind owners are going to have a, you know, if they, if they were short power, 
it's not going to look very good for them. And it's going to be very expensive for their investors as well. Uh, potentially, you know, bankruptcies, uh, potentially receiverships, potentially major restructuring and reorganization on some power owners and operators. Some major retail energy companies might potentially not have enough money to survive. So there's going to be some, some major changes that happen. It's going to take a lot of time to fix it. It's not something that they can fix overnight. Luckily, it's warming up and it's going to be 70 degrees and in Austin next week and the winter might be over. I don't know. And then we maybe get another winter event. But what I will say is that we need a lot more lead time. If, if these, just like a hurricane, we should have been notified 10 days earlier that there was going to be extreme cold and potential uh, blackout conditions. So people could have gotten to the grocery store. They could have stocked up on water. Uh, they could have potentially got out and got a generator with some propane. I mean, you know, look at Generac, the stock prices is, is exploded because maybe everybody needs a generator. But what I would say is that if you had a rooftop solar system and you were in a sunny spot and you had a you had the right configuration where you could, you know, use your you, you have you can use backup storage and, and solar during the day. I mean, those homes probably again, depending on the metering infrastructure, whether it's net metering or utility metering, you know, in some cases, even with a blackout, you still can't run your power plant, right? Or you can't run your rooftop solar system because the whole grid is down. But to that extent, those people might have actually fared quite well. Now, it's not really fair to say because it's still very expensive to manage rooftop solar and it's still very expensive to install that. But, you know, there's got to be a better way, right? And I think that's kind of the, the moral of the story is it works until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, it's really bad. But it works 99 days out of 100 and people take it for granted. So I think using less, conserving, being more aware of your energy usage, being more aware of zombie load in your in your house, unplugging things, uh, just being smarter about how you manage your electricity could have definitely changed this outcome for sure. Yeah, I feel like there is a need here for a Game of Thrones reference or two. Winter is coming. There was oh, yeah. visibility and there was uh, not nearly enough warning at the consumer level to be able to actually take meaningful action against it. A lot of things that you mentioned there that we definitely in our community believe strongly about the need for a smart grid, the fundamental core belief that resiliency, not just in Puerto Rico, but obviously in ERCOT and other markets is a key contributor to our ability to get closer to 100% renewables. And if not renewables, then 100% decarbonization of our grid you know, storage is going to play a big piece of that. I posted on Twitter that one of the big things in my mind now is look looking at CPS Energy's RFP that just closed on February 1st. They're evaluating offers right mm -hmm. now for only only 50 megawatt hours of storage. How's that going to change? I'm sure they got more than 50 yep. megawatt hours of offers. And I suggested in my tweet that they're now going to, I bet, modify that mix to to incorporate more storage because lo and behold, having storage would have... It would have saved something here, sorry for interrupting, but two hours of storage doesn't do much, right? You need, like, we would have needed long duration storage. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, the RFP, it, it's probably, you know, uh, the RFP is great, but it probably means that the other cold units are coming offline, right? They're, you know, there's, they're, yeah. See, it means that there are thermal units that are coming offline. That's, that's right. right. So like you're replacing 900 megawatts of, of, of coal at Spruce, which is a coal plant outside of, outside of, of San Antonio, which definitely is polluting, right? I mean, again, it's a coal plant with 900 megawatts of solar and 50 megawatts of storage. Well, that wouldn't have, I mean, we needed that power plant this week, right? We needed it. Like, forget it. 900 megawatts would have been another couple hundred thousand people without, without power. And so, you know, I think 
there's a there's a healthy balance. I think we're not focusing enough on long duration storage, which is like eight hour storage, which is more thermal storage uh, rather than battery lithium ion. It's more solid state molten storage. Salt and, yep. Yeah, molten salt storage, which is smart. We just need better mix of technologies, right? It's not just going to be solar and wind. It's going to be solar, wind, storage, geothermal, other types of non conventional resources. And you know, I would love for our coal plants to be able to produce clean coal, right? Decarbonized coal. We have abundance of coal. We have tons of coal. We have big. We know how to do coal in, the, in, in North America, but it's really dirty. If you can figure out how to make it clean, well, we've got we've got enough to last. You know, we can burn dirt and we can be okay, right? And it's just, um, I think you know, solar is great. I love it. You know, it's it's going to continue to to outpace the increase in generation in most parts of the world. But if you look at the interconnection requests in ERCOT, there's not very many new natural gas plants coming. And it's all renewable, so they're going to have to figure something out, right? And it's that it's it, we're just getting more load growth every year, more industrial growth. It's a tech, it's a business friendly state. We're getting a lot of data centers. Samsung's building a new facility here. Every data center that goes up is another hundred megawatts. You know, it's just it's a growing it's a growing state with a aging fleet. If you look at the it, by 2025, 2030, the average age of the natural gas plants are going to be 50, 60, 70 years old. It's crazy. Right. We've got plants from the 1970s still running. 1970s. I mean, the technology in those power plants, look at your cell phone. The cell phone, I mean, that's literally, it's 50 years ago. It's crazy. We're still running power plants from the 1970s in Texas. So we've got to do something. We've got to do something. Well, Evan, I really appreciate you've demonstrated exactly why it made sense for us to have this conversation in a timely moment in, uh, in the overall narrative of the transition of Texas electric, electric grid. As a microcosm of you into what are the core fundamental problems we as an industry are going to face, and we need to not be myopic, we need to not be overly optimistic about the prospects without seeing and understanding the problems that can be created in this energy transition. Evan Carone is the founder and chief strategy officer for ClearTrace, a technology startup based in Austin, Texas, and he has firsthand experience not just with the Texas grid, but with the failure there in in his hometown this week during the uh, the cold, cold winter event that we've all been hearing about in the news. We'll be hearing more from Evan in a forthcoming long-form interview here on Suncast. In the meantime, Evan, wish you well and be safe. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today to help us understand this all better. Well, as I said in the beginning of this episode, Evan and I are glad that you jumped into this Suncast soundbite to learn more about how the Texas market is evolving through this crisis, what exactly this all means for us. Man, I'd love to hear your thoughts. There's two ways that you can give us your thoughts. The first is follow me on Clubhouse at Suncast. That's right, at Suncast on Clubhouse. And you'll be able to jump in when I create this conversation with Evan on Clubhouse to take this conversation further. The other is we've obviously posted this on LinkedIn and please go follow me on LinkedIn as well. You can find Suncast Media as well as me, Nico Johnson on LinkedIn. Hopefully we're already connected there. And let me know on LinkedIn, did we get anything wrong? Is there anything we missed in this conversation? What are you thinking about, wondering about how could we have dug deeper into this or or what conversation should we be encouraging or having? as a result of this. I'm so grateful that you have tuned in to this special Suncast edition. If you'd like more of these, gosh, email me, nico at mysuncast.com. Say, Nico, more of these. I'd love to know it. 
we are always trying to think about how to serve you better solar warrior climate champion i am so glad that you tuned in today i hope that if you are down in texas you are staying warm and safe my heart goes out to all of our friends in texas who are struggling through this tragedy if there's anything we can do to help you please let us know uh you know you can tweet me at nico mayo on uh, twitter find me on clubhouse at suncast uh, i'm there occasionally and of course i'm always on linkedin you can email me nico at mysuncast.com and stay tuned because we have amazing content coming your way every tuesday and thursday as usual thank you solar warrior remember you are what you listen to thanks again for showing up solar warrior it's half the battle <laughs>